Our scripture lesson this morning is from John chapter 4. Hear God's word to us this morning. But he, meaning Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. The Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. A Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Well, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us that well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. But Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said, Sir, I I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said to him, what do you want or why are you speaking with her? When the woman left her water jar and went back to the city, Jesus said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. May God bless this reading of his word to us. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I am very prone to leave you even though I love you. Lord, that leaves me thirsting for something true and something real. So please open your word to us this morning and guide us through it so that we can know you better and so that our souls can be satisfied. We pray this in your name. Amen. A metaphor that could be applied to my life and maybe to yours 
is the difference between salt water and fresh water. As you know, the reason that you can't drink salt water when you're thirsty is it just makes you thirstier. And so then you drink more, and, and then you're just thirstier, and you just keep drinking it until finally you get sick. There are a lot of things in life that I think that work that way, where we seek to fill a need in some way, and it just leaves us needier in the end. When I first started doing college ministry down in California, I believed that in order to feel sort of secure about myself as a pastor, I needed to see that group grow to 100 students. And then when it got to 100 students, I thought, well... I'm there, but I need to be safely there, so it would be better if I had 150 students. So I had kind of a buffer zone. I could lose 50, and I'd still have my 100. (laughs) When it got to 150, I thought, well, this isn't quite good enough. I want 200. And when it got to 200, I still wasn't satisfied because I was afraid I was going to ruin it. It was all going to fall apart. Turning to numbers in my ministry to make me feel secure vocationally just left me feeling more insecure. I think there are a lot of things like that. For instance, we need to feel financially secure, so we turn to money. But the more we have, the more we spend. Funny how that works, isn't it? And we just need more, and we're caught in some kind of endless cycle. Or we need to feel loved, so we might end up in an unhealthy relationship. And then we get hurt, and that just leaves us feeling needier. Alcohol, the need to be successful. Problems with uncontrollable anger, unhealthy obsession with physical appearance. All of these things can be like salt water. Instead of satisfying us, they just leave us thirstier and maybe even sick. And worse than that, worse than that, when we are caught in those cycles, we end up feeling like there is no way that God could want us. We end up feeling unworthy and guilty and we don't even want to be in His presence and we certainly don't want to go to church. We're talking in the next few weeks about plastic Jesus, the misconceptions people have about who Jesus is and what he wants. And I think one of the main ones people have is that Jesus wants perfect people, or at least close to perfect. And that if you're going to be part of him, if you're going to be part of his church, what you have to do is you kind of have to clean yourself up and sort of come all shiny and happy and, well, perfect. Philip Yancey tells a story in one of his books about a friend of his who met with a prostitute who was in dire financial straits. And his friend asked the prostitute, said, well, have you gone to a church for help? And she said, church? Why would I go there? They just make me feel terrible. And I think that's the perception that a lot of people have of who Jesus is. If you're going to come to Jesus, you better be perfect. You better gussy yourself up because church is not a place for people with problems. And what that stereotype does is to convince all those non-Christians that you and I see every day that they can't come here. Because in order to come here, they'd have to first make themselves perfect, which of course is backwards, right? Because really, first you come to Jesus and then you're part of his community and then you're changed. So that stereotype keeps Christians away. And you know what that stereotype does to those of us who take the name Christian? It makes us afraid. It makes us afraid that if anyone found out what we really were like, or what we were really struggling with, well then, we wouldn't belong. And so we hide our sins and our addictions and our shame, and the church ends up becoming a museum to display the victorious lifestyle, rather than a hospital for sinners like it's supposed to be. 
That's why I love this story about Jesus and the woman at the well, because in it he just shatters any stereotype we might have that what he wants is perfect people, or pretty close. To begin with, I think what this story shows us is that far from avoiding sinful people, Jesus will go out of his way to find them and restore them to relationship with him. You know, as you probably know, according to the customs of the day, Jesus should have nothing to do with this woman. I mean, it's bad enough that she's a Samaritan. And Jews had no dealings with Samaritans because they were considered heretics and traitors and racially impure. So it's bad enough that she's a Samaritan. Worse yet, she's a woman. In a culture where a Jewish man would regularly pray the prayer, I thank you, God, that you did not make me a Gentile, a dog, or a woman, in that order. Bad enough, she's a Samaritan. Worse yet, she's a woman. Worse even still, she is this particular woman. She's had five husbands, and the one she has now is not her husband. Jewish law allowed for a maximum of only three husbands. She's two over her limit, and she's fishing without a license. That's why she comes to this well alone at noon. When most women went in groups in the morning. She comes alone in the middle of the day because she's an outcast. And nobody will go with her. And she's ashamed. But Jesus reaches beyond all of those barriers. He reaches beyond the barriers of race and religion and gender and even of moral behavior to get to her. And to show her and to show us that whose we are is far more important to him than who we are or what we've done. Verse 4 says that in order to get to Galilee, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Geographically, that's not true. There was a route around Samaria, and a pious Jew would have taken it to avoid Samaritans. Jesus had to go through Samaria. The real reason he had to go through Samaria was to get to her. Just like he had to come from heaven to earth to get to you and me. Jesus does not avoid sinful people. On the contrary, he seeks them out. And I believe that this woman was hooked the minute Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Her whole life she'd been ostracized as a prostitute, trapped in her own immoral search to feel loved, six desperate tries to feel wanted, six desperate tries to feel valued, resulting only in a ruined self-esteem and a wrecked reputation. She had been drinking a lot of salt water, and it just left her thirstier. But finally, somebody treats her with dignity. Finally, somebody treats her like a human being and reaches out to her. And that changes her. Jesus breaks down every barrier, violates every social taboo, goes out of his way to reach sinful you and sinful me, to let us know that we're forgiven and that we can have a new start. And that quenches our deep thirst to be valued, and wanted. We are sought after people. The second way Jesus shatters the stereotype that he only wants perfect people is that he knows the truth about who we really are and he tells it to us, but he loves us anyway. In this conversation, Jesus talks about living water, the kind that quenches every thirst permanently, and, and the woman says to him, Give me some of this water so I don't have to come back to this well. And then Jesus says this odd thing Go call your husband. It's kind of an awkward transition, don't you think? Give me some living water. Go call your husband. It's a non sequitur. As a former English teacher, this drives me crazy. <laughs> if this had been an essay, I would have circled it in red, and I would have said, Jesus, 
Your essay, though spiritually provocative, suffers from a series of awkward non sequiturs, B minus. <laughs> Shows you what I know. I think there's actually a very powerful truth in that awkward non sequitur. By turning the focus of the conversation to her five husbands, to the things she's most ashamed about, what Jesus is saying is, the living water you want, the kind that quenches every thirst, well, that means that you have to tell the truth to God about your life so that he can tell the truth back to you, that you're forgiven. You see, like this woman, I think a lot of us are caught up in sort of a cycle of shame where we, we, we were terrified that people are going to find out who we really are and that if they do, we'll never be loved. And so we cover it up and we hide it, which only makes us feel more ashamed and just makes us feel worse. And the only way out of that cycle is to fess up to God and at least one other person and say, I'm a sinner. To tell the truth about our broken lives so that we can hear God's truth back to us that we're forgiven. Now, admittedly, that's scary. That's why this woman hesitates. She equivocates. If you notice in the conversation, after Jesus asks her about her husband, she says, I have no husband. Correct, but only on a technicality. And Jesus calls her on that, and he says, you're right, the one you have now is not your husband. And then she says this great thing, <laughs> sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Good guess. <laughs> and then she changes the subject. Oh, Jesus, uh, you know, some people say we should worship on this mountain, and some say in Jerusalem. What do you think? In other words, enough about me. Let's talk theology, okay? This is getting too close. So Jesus says, okay. If you want to talk about worship, we'll talk about worship. If you want to worship, you have to worship in spirit and truth. And then he repeats that word truth over and over and over again. In other words, worship is truth-telling. Worship is when we come to God and say, Lord, I'm a broken sinner. And he says, I know. That's why I died to forgive you, and that's why I'm going to give you my spirit to change you. Worship isn't about singing songs. It's not about hearing sermons. It's not even about coming to church. Worship is when our truth meets God's truth. Far from wanting only perfect people, Jesus knows the truth of who we really are, loves us anyway, and forgives us and then transforms us to be new people. And that quenches our deep thirst to be fully known and fully loved. Two things that go together only in a relationship with Jesus, not even in marriage. Fully known and fully loved. The last way I think Jesus shatters the stereotype that he only wants perfect people is he uses even our sin for his glory. After meeting Jesus, this woman runs into the village and she says, she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now that is a big change for a woman who's come to this well in secret and in shame and in hiding. And now suddenly she's blabbing her life story to the village. And all the villagers are coming out to see Jesus because of it. In other words, her sin becomes evangelism. Her sin becomes the pulpit she climbs into to tell the good news about Jesus. Her sin and what Jesus does with it becomes the thing that convinces all the villagers that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Her sin isn't good, but what Jesus does with it is. Jesus can use even our sin for his glory, just like he did on the cross where our sin led us to crucify our Creator. But He used that as the event to forgive us. 
good Christian is an oxymoron anyway. Think about it. Right? Because to be a Christian, you have to first admit you need forgiveness for something. Jesus goes out of his way to find imperfect people, and he tells them the truth about their sin. He forgives them. He changes them. And then he uses even our brokenness for his glory. And that quenches all our thirst, unlike the salt water we keep drinking every day. And that's why I think the most important detail in this story comes in verse 28, where it says she dropped the water jar. Kind of a funny little detail to put in there, don't you think? But I think it sums up the whole story. You see, this woman had been coming to this well day after day. But each day she had to go back again because she was thirsty. Just like she'd been going from husband to husband to husband, but still not satisfied. The well, the husband's the same thing. Water that does not satisfy. But when she meets Jesus, she drops the water jar. Her itinerary of desire has come to an end. She's got living water. Her deepest needs have been met and she's been changed. Back before I was a pastor, I used to lead a Bible study for some college guys. And uh, we'd meet once a week for Bible study and, and we'd do prayer requests. But being men, it was always a little bit shallow. No vulnerability there. No siree. The students would say things like, well, I've got a lot of work to do. Just pray that I get it done. Which really isn't a confession, right? It's, it's kind of a boast. I'm so important. I'm so busy. I need the Almighty to get everything done. And I was no better. We talk about news, weather, and sports, but never our lives. We did this for four years. <laughs> well, one night, one of the students during the prayer request time just sort of blurted, just sort of blurted this thing out. He said, I can't be part of this Bible study anymore. And when I tell you why, what I'm about to tell you, you're not going to want me here. And then he went on to tell us that he was having a hard time resisting pornography. And he said, I know it's wrong, I know it's hurting me, I know it's demeaning to everyone else, but I can't stop. And I bet you hate me. Well, none of us, including me, knew what to do with such a sudden eruption of honesty. But finally, one of the students said, well, I don't know what to say, but this is what I think. Jesus died to forgive you. He doesn't want you to keep living this way, so I know he's going to help you change. And I'm not going to judge you. I'm just going to help you. And then another guy in the group, there's a silence, and then another guy in the group said, now that you mention it, I have that problem too. So we prayed for both of them, and every week we'd ask them how they were doing with that problem, and eventually these two guys ended up being roommates so that they could help each other, and within a few months, they were free of their addiction. But more than that, because these two students had admitted their brokenness, this Bible study that really was a colossal waste of time for four years suddenly became this real community. And they became friends. And that freed other students to talk about whatever they were struggling with. And, and, and I learned how to help people struggle with all kinds of issues. And God used even their brokenness for something good. And the only downside was that it took an entire presidential term for us to get there. You see, when we keep something secret, it just grows in the dark like a mushroom. But when we let it out, it loses its power, and we can be changed, and we can be freed. And what we all discovered in that small group was that Jesus doesn't want perfect people. He wants real people with real struggles. 
And he'll go out of his way to reach them. And then he'll forgive them and he'll transform them and he'll turn even our shame into his glory. And that's what the church is supposed to be. A community where all of that happens. Not a museum to display the victorious lifestyle. So here's the question. What's your well? What's the salt water that you keep drinking that only leaves you thirstier? Money? Unhealthy relationships? Alcohol? Unfair anger at people you love? Obsession with physical appearance? Food? What is it for you? And could you be honest with Jesus about that? And could you find at least one trusted brother or sister in Christ to share that with? So that you can know freedom and so that the church can be the church. What's your well? Because here's the shocker. Jesus wants to meet you at that well. Not just in your office. Not just here in church when we're all gussied up and looking happy and holy. You know, not just in special sacred moments, but at that well. At that place of shame that you keep going back to over and over and over again. Where you're just sure that nobody can handle you. Jesus meets us there. And he offers us an amazing exchange. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, he gives us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that we can become trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Jesus longs to meet us at the well just as we are. And he offers us living water, life without addiction, and life without shame. Lord Jesus, just as we are without one plea, except that you died for us and that you're the one who invites us to come, so Lamb of God, we come. Please take us as we are and change us into all that we can be and we'll be grateful people. We pray this in your name. Amen.